at last. A warm, sensitive, touching story about the close personal relationship between a man and a woman. Between a trucker and his dog. Fred, I'm so damn tired of picking you up. I got to Fred! Between a father no way. and his son. No way that you could come from my loins. And how they all took to the road one day for a quiet little drive in the country. From Georgia to Texas and back. In 28 hours flat. With a truckload of bootleg beer. I'll be driving this one. Hey, uh, blocker, blocker. You'll be driving the truck. This is Bandit 1, and that is uh, Bandit 2. <laughs> now, who would do a thing like that? <laughs> be crazy, you know that? Yeah, you know that. <laughs> yes. Okay, how much money you say it was? $1,000. Universal presents Burt Reynolds, Sally Field, Jerry Reed, and Fred. We're going to really have to cook. I mean, put it on the back burner and let's cook. Is that a 10-4? And the only thing that stands between them and an $80,000 prize, Jackie Gleason as Sheriff Buford T. Justice. I gotta barbecue your... Bandit, I got a smoky report for you. What's your handle, son? My handle, Smokey Bear, and I'm tail-grabbing your... <laughs> This is Smokey and the Bandit, the story about a lazy weekend in Alabama, Texas, Mississippi, Arkansas, Georgia. Daddy, the top came off. No. We ain't gonna make it, son. We come that far, ain't we? Look, when we say we're gonna do a job, we do a job? Smokey and the Bandit, proving once and for all, it's not where you're going that counts, it's who the hell's in back of you. Hello everybody and welcome to Is It Yours, the movie review program where we ask the ever-important question, Is It Yours? Today I am joined by my buddy Chris Franklin. Hey Chris. Hey Paul, how you doing? I'm good, thanks. Thanks for coming on with me today. Oh, glad to be here. Chris and I were talking a couple of weeks ago, and I said to him, hey, what movie would you like to cover? And he said, let me think about that. And then he came back to me with Smokey and the Bandit. And I confess, although I am very familiar with Smokey and the Bandit, I don't think I've ever sat and watched it from beginning to end before this past week. (gasps) (laughs) Oh, hope I'm not offending you yet. I'm leaving. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's surprising, too, because I am a Burt Reynolds fan. I like his comedy, and I like his uh, serious movies, too. Uh, I would say The End is my favorite of his comedies, mm. although yeah. Cannibal Run is a close second on that one for me. Oh, yeah. And then on the serious movies, I go a little bit off the board because Sharky's Machine is my favorite. Oh, yeah. Gotcha. But I, I you know, Burt Reynolds, when this came out, was one of the biggest stars... In movies. Oh, yeah. Definitely. And, you know, this this movie came out in the midst of the CB trucker craze. Or actually, it may have been closer to the tail end of it. Mm-hmm. But there was definitely the craze going on at that point. And, and this movie fell right into it. And it was a huge, huge hit. And we'll start off with that. Because I did a quick look on, on the numbers on this thing. And uh, did you look at that yet? Yeah, well, I know that it was the second highest grossest, gri- highest grossing movie of 1977 behind that sci-fi movie everybody's forgotten about now. Yeah, that one, yeah. the one that one, the one that had no known, no known names in it, no stars. Right, that one. Yeah, yeah. Made by a director who had only made one or two movies up to that point. Yeah, nothing ever came of it after that. It made a bunch of money and just went away, kind of like Avatar. You know, <laughs> it could be like pretty much the polar opposite of Avatar <laughs> as far as longevity goes. But uh, according to Wikipedia, and I'm going to jump from Wikipedia to Box Office Mojo in a minute. According to Wikipedia, the budget on this movie was $4.3 million. And the uh, formula that I keep citing that I've heard is correct, and that's by today's standards, I don't know in, uh, you know, 1977 what they thought, but. 
the box office, or excuse me, the formula I always hear is two and a half times the budget is what you need to make. So at four point three million, if they made about eleven million or so, they would be good. Mm-hmm. According to uh, Wikipedia, this movie earned three hundred million dollars. <laughs> wow. <laughs> now taking that over to box office mojo just to to cut the numbers a little bit because I assume that is the worldwide gross on it. Yeah. Uh, according to Box Office Mojo, which I think is a little bit more reliable, they put the domestic gross at $126,737,428. Still a huge, huge take on this movie, even though it's less than half of what Wikipedia cited. And that's $1977 too, right? I, I don't believe that they, uh, that they adjust the dollars. Right, yeah. So imagine what that would be nowadays. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, if you do the math on it, if you if you take four point three million, the average movie today, if it doesn't have a high budget, is still probably close to a hundred million. Yeah. So that would mean this movie would probably make I don't know two or three billion. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's insane. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's it's off the charts. It's ridiculous, but it's pretty amazing. Uh, according to, I'm just looking again at uh, at Box Office Mojo. All time, according to this, on all time domestic list, it's number 427. All time adjusted, where they change the dollars for current, mm-hmm. it says it's number 70. Oh wow, <laughs> that's that's pretty that's pretty impressive considering it's not blockbuster movie material by any means. You know, I mean it's a it's a comedy, and even at that point, that was a it was a fairly low budget comedy. I mean, I. From what I've read, you know, Burt Reynolds took up like a, a fourth of the budget. I think he was played like a, a paid like a million dollars or something to be in it. So, <laughs> yeah, really, that's yeah, he was a big part of it. Let me give the uh, synopsis on this one, which I take from Wikipedia. Wealthy Texan Big Enos Burdett and his son Little Enos, Pat McCormick and Paul Williams, seek a truck truck driver willing to bootleg Coors beer to Georgia for their refreshment. At the time, Coors was regarded as one of the finest beers in the United States, but it could not legally be sold east of the Mississippi River. And I'm going to interrupt the synopsis for a moment to say, I do remember that that was the case. That's, oh, really? That is not a falsehood for the movie. That was reality at that time. Well, I know a lot of people, I've seen people point that out, is that that, that was a stupid plot point, but everything I've read and you just backed it up said, no, that's true. So the people, do your research, people, you know? Yeah. Before you gripe about something. <laughs> I remember, you know, I, I was in my teens when this came out, and I remember people talking about Coors Beer, and it was just, you could not find it, and then I eventually found out. It was because they were not allowed to transport it cross-country. Was something to do with it wasn't pasteurized, or, or I do not. I honestly don't know the reasoning for it. I, I don't want to say anything. I, I read that. It, yeah, it was, I read that on IMDb, that it, and it, you know, IMDb sometimes it's not exactly reliable, because it's... A lot like, like Wikipedia, it's written by whoever. But uh, they said that Hal Needham had read an article. The director had read an article that that said something about that. You know, he he found out that you know Ford Beer. The reason it couldn't be transported uh, uh, east of the Mississippi was because of pasteurization regulations, and it had, would have to be refrigerated and this and that and all that. So I don't know if that's the real reason, but either way, yes, it was. And you, like I said, you confirmed that yeah, this this was a real thing. So sorry to interrupt your synopsis. Not, not at all. I'm glad you're giving your thoughts whenever you feel free. Whenever you, whenever you feel the need to, please jump in. Okay. Truck drivers who had taken the bet previously had been caught and arrested by Smokey CB slang for highway patrol officers, referring to the Smokey Bear type hats worn in some states. The Burdettes find legendary trucker Bo Bandit Darville, played by Burt Reynolds, competing in a truck rodeo at Lake, Lakewood Fairgrounds in Atlanta. They offer him $80,000 to haul 400 cases of Coors beer from Texarkana, Texas, back to Atlanta in 28 hours. Big Enos has sponsored a racer running in the Southern Classic and wants to celebrate in style after he wins. Bandit accepts the bet and recruits his best friend and partner, Cletus Snowman Snow, played by Jerry Reed, to drive the truck, while Bandit drives the Blocker, a black Trans Am, bought on an advance from the Burdettes to divert attention away from the truck and its illegal cargo. The trip to Texas is mostly uneventful, except for at least one pursuing Smokey, whom Bandit evades with ease. They reach Texarkana an hour ahead of schedule, load their truck, 
with beer and head back to Atlanta. Immediately upon starting the second leg of the run, Bandit picks up a runaway bride, Carrie, played by Sally Field, whom he eventually nicknames Frog because she's kind of cute like a frog and always hopping around. But in doing so, Bandit makes himself a target of Texas Sheriff Buford T. Justice, played by Jackie Gleason, a career lawman whose handsome but slow-witted son, Junior, played by Mike Henry, has been Carrie's, who was to have been Carrie's bridegroom. Ignoring his own jurisdiction, Sheriff Justice and Junior, with Junior in tow, chases Bandit all the way to Georgia, even as various mishaps cause his cruiser to disintegrate around them. The remainder of the film is one lengthy high-speed chase as Bandit's antics attract more and more attention from local and state police across Dixie, while Snowman barrels on towards Atlanta with the contraband beer. Bandit and Snowman are helped along the way via, including via CO... Bandit and Snowman are helped along the way by many colorful characters, including a hearse driver, an elderly lady, a drive-in waitress, and all her customers, a convoy of trucks, and even a madman who runs a brothel out of her odd... Even a ma- madame who runs a brothel out of her RV. Neither Sheriff Justice nor any other police officers have any knowledge of Snowman's illegal manifest. The chase intensifies as Bandit and Snowman get closer to Atlanta, and local police have stepped up their pursuit with more cruisers, larger roadblocks, and even a police helicopter to track Bandit's movements. With four miles still to go and discouraged by the unexpected mounting attention, Bandit wants to give up, but Snowman refuses to listen and takes the lead. Smashing through the roadblock at the entrance of the fairgrounds, they arrive back at Lakewood Speedway while the Southern Classic race is being run with only 10 minutes to spare. But instead of taking the payoff, Frog and Bandit accept a double or nothing offer from Little Enos, a challenge to drive up to Boston and bring back clam chowder in another 18 hours. They quickly leave in one of Big Enos's Cadillac convertibles, passing Sheriff Justice's badly damaged police car by the side of the road. Bandit first directs Sheriff Justice to Big and Little Enos, but then, in a gesture of respect, reveals his true location and invites Justice to give chase, leaving Junior behind. Whew. Yeah. <laughs> that was pretty well, that was pretty much the whole movie. I mean, you know, other than all the one-liners and slapstick, I mean, that, that covered the... And they forgot Fred. I don't know how the hell they could forget Fred, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, well, Fred, Fred was actually kind of fun in the movie. So I, I kind of agree with you that he should have at least been, he should have at least uh, warranted some mention in here. Right. But I mean, uh, Fred... let, me, let me start off by what, why do you love this movie so much? You know, uh, well, you know, I'm from Kentucky, so, you know. Uh, no, uh, it. I think, you know, when I was a kid, I I didn't see this in the theater, but it just, it's like you knew about this movie, even if you hadn't seen it. And then it was on TV. You know, I don't, I seem to remember it being on the ABC Sunday night movie, but then I thought every movie was on the ABC Sunday night movie. So, you know, you could, nowadays you can go find out if it was, but to my mind, it, you know, it was in rotation with the Superman movies and the James Bond movies and, and stuff like that. But I remember watching it on TV and, and of course it was years before I, really heard Jackie Gleason say anything in the movie because the TV edit has the, the guy that was the second voice of Fred Flintstone, uh, <laughs> dub all his lines, <laughs> a guy named Henry Corden. And it it's, which is kind of ironic considering that Fred Flintstone was based on Ralph Cramden, uh, of the honeymooners, obviously, which was Jackie Gleason. But yeah, that, I remember that, that watching is a, a nice little bit of, uh, of clever casting. Although I, you know, I, I assume he was, had probably passed by this time, but I think I would have preferred it if they had Alan Reed, the original Fred Flintstone. Right. Yeah. I think, and, and I think also there would have been a, a closer vocal match because it's pretty jarring because he, you know, Jackie Gleason will say a line and before he can say some bitch or, or whatever he, he says, he, he says, he call it, he says scumbum instead of some bitch, which I don't really know if scumbum's any better, but you know, <laughs> really? they... <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to think now, I'm not sure he uttered any line in this movie where he didn't say some bitch. <laughs> I don't think so, and most of it was ad libbed, apparently. So yeah, that, that's one of the facts that I read up on was that they said he pretty much had free reign to do whatever he wanted, which fits into Jackie Gleason's acting style from everything I've ever heard about him. And that, that was one of the things on the honeymooners was he never wanted to rehearse, and that always created problems for the other cast members. But they were just su- such high quality comic actors that they were able to manage it and. You know, he he would ad lib lines all the time on there. 
Right. Yeah. And I, and I know that, you know, in the, we're getting off track of, of how I got to it, but it, we're, this, we'll roll with it. Uh, cause it's, it, it, we're having a good conversation, but you know, he, uh, apparently the character of junior surprisingly wasn't originally in the script and he asked for someone to talk to in the car cause he needed somebody to play off of. So, I mean, you know, poor Mike Henry's basically a dumb block of wood, but you know, that works really well because, you know, Sheriff Buford T. Justice stays annoyed at him the entire time. And <laughs> mm-hmm. there's there's some great lines back and forth, you know, him reacting to his son. But but yeah, I, you know, I I had, uh, you know, the the Dukes of Hazard was big when I was a kid. And uh, and that definitely was influenced by this movie that and BJ and the Bear and Sheriff Lobo, uh, all these these shows basically uh, that, you know, just like anytime Hollywood's like, Hey, that was a big hit. Let's make a TV show. That's pretty much the same thing. Oh yeah. That's uh, definitely the way that they did it back then. Oh, I mean, you know, and even to the point where, you know, they had a basset hound, uh, it belonged to Roscoe. It belonged to the, the bad guy, quote unquote, but still they had, you know, they had Fred and Duke's had flash. But, uh, so, you know, I had the little hot wheel or matchbox trans am and, you know, you, you know, you place, you know, smoking the bandit and, and things like that. But it wasn't really till I got into college that one of my friends had it on VHS and brought it up and, you know, we put it in heavy rotation in our dorm room and, you know, got to where we, you know, had all the lines memorized and, and the uncut version, because most of us hadn't seen the uncut version. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, it just kind of entered our, our, uh, vernacular and and uh just you know we still quote it around here and it's 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 uh it's just one of those that you know that and movies like that and blazing saddles i can pop in and 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 get a chuckle you know matter what kind of mood i was in to begin with puts a smile on my face so it's it's just uh it's just a, a comforting comedy you know <laughs> right it, it's definitely you know having not seen it until now it's a little different than i expected I, I anticipated more of a uh, cannibal run type slapstick, mm-hmm. and it, it's a little bit less of that, and a little bit more of the you know high energy chase. Uh, you, there should almost be a little bit more banjo music being played while they're chasing in it. You know, kind of that that feeling of of just silly running around because cr- cars are crashing all over the place, but nobody's getting hurt. Right. So it is you know there is a very light hearted feel, but it's not quite as silly as I expected. Right. And, you know, one thing I, you know, watching it again more with the, for this, with a critical eye the other day, as, as critical as I'm going to get of it, I, you know, it, it struck me that, you know, despite the fact that it's set in the South and, and they're running, you know, truck drivers and guys that drive fast cars, you know, even though Jerry Reed's got a very thick Southern accent, they're not dumb, the dumb stereotypical redneck type that you'd get nowadays in in a comedy that that was you know had a bunch of southern characters in it i mean bandit's a pretty clever guy he seems fairly well educated you know i mean he can carry on the conversation with with frog who's you know a, a ex-dancer you know and there's the jokes about her you know being a professional and he's like well you shouldn't be wearing white and you know mm. <laughs> yeah, they kind of they no pun intended they kind of dance around that a little bit they they give you a little taste of it, but then they don't tell you like what type of dancer she is really. Right, right. You, know, you, you could, if you're a young child, you could believe that she was a dancer in like a ballet or something. Right, right. But, you know, she does say like she was, you know, in like a, a Broadway show for like a night or something and it got canceled or something. So I guess she did do some legitimate theater. But, <laughs> but you know, I, I thought that was kind of neat that uh, that they didn't, you know, they didn't portray... You know, like they were just, you know, complete, you know, it wasn't like the characters in uh, like, say, the water boy or or uh, Larry, the cable guys, you know, stand up or something. They weren't they they weren't that, you know, that they actually felt more real. You know, they I mean, I know people like I I got a buddy that that's pretty much the snowman, except he doesn't drive a truck, a truck. That's about the only difference. The only character that I thought was kind of a stupid caricature was junior right even even uh you know the bandit i mean excuse me Smokey rather he was blockheaded because he was so stubborn and and had too high of a self-opinion but he wasn't stupid at all in fact he was a lot smarter than some of the other cops who were chasing and even though they were more reasonable 
they would make stupid mistakes and that would be why Bandit would beat them out. Whereas, you know, Smokey, uh, you know, Jackie Gleason's part, uh, you know, he, he was able to keep the pursuit going because he was so single-minded and, and strong-willed. So he, he definitely wasn't played as a stupid character. No, I mean, it, you, you kind of, and I mean, you can kind of understand why he was, you know, doing what he was doing. I mean, he didn't know. Of course, what I think is funny, at no point in the movie does Carrie or Frog actually ever come clean with Bandit about why Sheriff Justice is chasing him. I mean, at the end, she says, no hard feelings, Junior, and that's pretty much all you get from her. You can imagine the conversation as they pull away in the Cadillac. He's like, well, who you who who's Junior? Who are you talking? What are you talking about? You know, bandits probably. Uh, and then she has to explain. Uh, well, that's why he's been chasing us this whole time. <laughs> I don't know if that. I can't remember if that ever came up in the sequel because ah, uh, yeah, the sequels. Yeah, you. Yeah. Well, I was going to get to that later, but as long as you bring them up, what you know, I've never seen either of the sequels, and what do you think of them? Uh, I have not tried to watch them. Well, I've tried to watch two about like ten years ago, and it was on TV. It wasn't it wasn't uh, unedited or anything, so it was a TV edit, and and I got about ten minutes into it, and I was like, no, and I changed it. So I, my my recollection was it was very very deep diminishing returns from one to two. I mean, uh, probably like going from uh, for this show from Jaws one straight to Jaws three or four and skipping two. Uh, <laughs> And then, then the third one's really bizarre. That's the one that was originally Smokey is the Bandit, wasn't it? Y- yes, and and I do recall seeing that trailer, and I looked it up online, and I'm like, I did see this before, where Jackie Gleason as Buford T. Justice is basically doing George C. George C. Scott and Patton in front of the giant American flag, and he's you know he announces that Smokey and the Bandit three is coming, and it's Smokey is the Bandit. And they apparently filmed the, the movie that way. And then test audiences did not like it. And they begged, you know, they couldn't get Burt Reynolds other than a cameo, but they, they basically got Jerry Reed to, to take over as the bandit or fill in for the bandit. And so it's like, it, it was a bad idea and it compounded with probably a worse idea, you know? Mm. <laughs> so, yeah. And, and then there was a series of, of TV movies, um, when I believe, and I didn't look this up, but I, if I, if memory serves, when Universal, they had something called like the Universal Action Pack or something, when TV syndication had gotten huge in the early 90s after Next Generation took off, you know, everybody was wanting to have a big, you know, uh, syndicated TV show. And Universal, uh, they launched Hercules, they had a new Smokey and the Bandit film series, TV film series. That they wrote, they rotated these different movies around, and I think the only one that went to series was Hercules, and then of course that spun off Xena and all that. But uh, there were a handful of Smokey and the Bandit TV movies made, not with any of the original cast. Uh, there was some young—I can't think of the guy's name. It, I can see his face, but I can't think of his name playing the Bandit, and they were pretty horrible. As <laughs> I didn't even watch them, but I, you know, I tried to watch like the first one and didn't make it through it. So I, I saw something about those when I was doing a little research on the movie, and they were even even in the articles they were quickly dismissed as being nothing special. So I really didn't waste too much time on them. Yeah, it's kind of like the you know the the Dukes of Hazard movie they made, and then they they even it was bad enough, and then they made a bad direct to video sequel with different actors. So it's, it's like whoa. <laughs> But, or the uh, new the new monsters or the new oh yes don't anything for a buck you know uh, but uh, I thought it was you know when I it took me forever to figure out that uh, that Mike Henry that played Junior had been Tarzan and and I actually remember some of the Tarzan movies he he was in and it it I didn't uh, I didn't know that until like years and years later that he had played Tarzan three times. And apparently they wanted him for the TV series that, that Ron uh, Eli had, had was in. Uh, but he like sued the producers because he got like bit by a monkey and had dysentery and all sorts of awful things happened to him on the movie sets. Wow. 
<laughs> it, he does not strike me as the Tarzan type in this movie, but I guess he's. I guess that's a little bit of range, at least. Yeah, he was a former football player, and and uh, he actually. Now I've read this on in several different places that when ABC was first casting about to make a Batman series in the '60s, before they decided on doing it as a, a parody, they had him. Uh, he was high on their list to play Batman, Mike Henry. Oh wow. Yeah, so he's definitely got the jaw for it. You know? <laughs> yeah, that, no question. I mean, he didn't get a chance to do too much acting in this movie. He's mainly there just to be a, you know, somewhat of a comic foil to Jackie Gleason and otherwise just to be a sounding board for him. Right, right. I mean, he, you know, he, 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 he gets, he has to hold his hat and, you know, he falls off and, you know, hits the hood of the car a couple times and is <laughs> hanging on the hood after they've had a couple wrecks and, and things. Or, or but, commenting on the obvious, you know. Yeah, <laughs> he sure had a lot of friends, didn't he, Daddy? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, I found this to be a real interesting way of making a movie. Uh, there's there's a lot of chemistry, I thought, between the actors who have very little screen time together. Mm-hmm. You know, Jerry Jerry Reed and, and Burt Reynolds have a chemistry together. Jackie Gleason and Burt Reynolds have a chemistry together, and they really shared the screen for only a few minutes each. Good point. Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's it's almost uh, it's not quite uh, Wrath of Khan uh, because they do actually are actually on screen together. Uh, but yeah, that that's a good that's a good point. I mean, I, Jerry Reed and Ed Burt Reynolds had had worked together before, but uh, in other movies. But uh, yeah, they they're not on screen together. Yeah, it's basically it's basically Burt Reynolds and Sally Field in the car through most of the movie and in Mike Henry and with uh, Jackie Gleason through most of the movie and then Jerry Reed with Fred for most of yes. the movie. <laughs> now, I know I know it's you know Sally Field and Burt Reynolds were an item for quite a while and mm-hmm. I don't know if they were already an item and decided to make this movie together or if they made this movie and that's how they you know started their romance. I think that's what it was because I think Burt Reynolds basically wanted her for the role because he had a crush on her since she played Gidget. That's something I read now. Well, you know, you got to take all everything you read like that with a grain of salt. But, you know, it, it's it's quite possible. And and, you know, apparently she wasn't she at first wasn't real up on it, but he convinced her to do it. And she thought it would be kind of a, a change for her because she'd recently done things like Sybil uh, that were mm-hmm. that, that were quite heady, you know. Uh, playing somebody with multiple personality disorder or whatever they call it. The, this is, what do they call it nowadays? Disassociative, the, whatever they call it. But, you know, same thing. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so I think that this movie's what started their their romance. And they may have already been broken up by the time Smokey and the Bandit 2 came along. I'm not sure. Well, I mean, they did a number of movies together, including, as I said, my favorite Burt Reynolds comedy, The End. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I... I always found her, in, at least in these movies, to be cute and charming. I always found her yes. very attractive in these movies. And yet uh, I've heard some people who, who, you know, they hear that and they say, really? I don't see that at all. Oh, yeah. I've always thought she was cute. I I mean, it. I, I guess part of it, too, was when I was a kid, The well, even though I don't think it lasted very long, the, the old Gidget TV series was syndicated uh, for a while. And, you know, so I, you know... She was cute there, and not the flying nun, you know, couldn't, can't really, you know, she was funny, but, you know, but yeah, I thought she was, I always thought she was, I've heard people say that too, and I did, I mean, yeah, she's not like, you know, there's a difference between being like attract, cute and attractive and being like, you know, vampy, sexy, and she's not that, but she's definitely cute in my opinion, so. Yeah, yeah. I'm with you. Yeah, you know, and of course, you know, the ladies got, you know, obviously Bert was very popular uh, with the ladies, uh. <laughs> you know, well, I, I thought it was funny like his his first shot on screen uh, i think i think before he actually says anything he lets out his his trademark high-pitched laugh <laughs> yeah. which you, you, you know and, and and then looks at the camera and gives his smile and everything and i I'm, I'm normally very critical of that somebody who just you know kind of smiles at the camera and expects everybody to love him but for some reason for him it kind of worked better than yeah. i think it does for some other people I think part of it too is this movie. From from my understanding, is is that uh, you know the director Hal Needham was a stuntman, and him and Burt Reynolds had worked together before, and they were friends. And Hal Needham came up with this story idea, and he wanted to direct this movie, and nobody wanted to touch it because he was a stuntman, not a director. And his he got his Burt his buddy Burt Reynolds involved, and 
then all of a sudden people set up and said, oh, okay, well, sure, you know, because Burt Reynolds was the top of the box office back then. And so, you know, you get the idea that he pretty much, you know, assembled, you know, Burt Reynolds basically got to pick, you know, he got his buddy Jerry Reed in on it. He was friends with him. He, he liked Sally Field, so he got her. He wanted a, you know, a, a strong comedy actor for Buford T. Justice. They, uh, apparently Richard Boone had been, uh, had been talked about for, for Buford T. Justice, but yeah. Reynolds didn't think he, you know, he needed somebody that was, had a stronger comedic uh, presence. So they got Jackie Gleason. So you just really get the impression that they're, they're having a blast while they're making this movie. And I think that's one reason why you forgive. I mean, there's one point where the bandit, the first time he evades a cop in the movie, he's like hides behind a building as the cop goes by and he pulls up right to the camera, looks at it, breaks the fourth wall and smiles at you. You know, I mean, it's it's like Deadpool level, you know, what I mean, right. it's, <laughs> and but, you know, it's I think it's because it's he's having fun. It's Burt Reynolds at that time. And it's like, you know, he's like saying, don't take this too seriously. It's just just sit back and it's 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 a fun time for the next hour and a half two hours as we you know wreck cars and you know have crazy one-liners uh <laughs> so uh yeah i think it i think it uh yeah, i'm with you sometimes when when actors do that it you know some movies it works like it works in ferris bueller ferris bueller's day off I agree. Uh, of course he's talking through the whole movie to you uh, other movies, it doesn't. You're like, you haven't earned that, dude. Don't look at me. And t- <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> don't be looking at me like that, man. That's a, you're yeah. creeping me out. <laughs> you don't know me. <laughs> now, one of the things about this movie is, I, I was, I always kind of had it, it in, had it in my mind that uh, the character of Sheriff Pepper from the James Bond movies, if mm-hmm. you remember him from Live and Let Die and The Man with the Golden Gun. Oh yeah, and, and in my mind, he was—I always saw him as a ripoff of Jackie Gleason in this movie, and yet this movie is uh, four or five years later. Right. So right, that, that actually yeah. surprised me when I realized the dates on these things. Yeah, I guess that Southern Sheriff thing had—I don't know if it's maybe something from In the Heat of the Night. Maybe that had something to do with it. Uh, you know, because I mean, of course, that was the whole big—the whole big thing of that movie was that the that the uh, the the urban detective had went to the uh, the South and. And all that, you know, but so that could possibly be it. And and it apparently a lot of what Jackie Gleason did with Buford T. Justice was based on Burt Reynolds' dad, who was a who was a law enforcement officer. He was a a chief in uh, somewhere down in Florida, wherever Burt Reynolds was from. And he had a friend on the force whose name really was Buford T. Justice. Oh, wow. (laughs) So so they changed all these. Apparently in the original script, all the names are different and they changed them as they, you know, I guess to fit the, the actor that they cast and just, to, I think Bandit had a totally different name than Bo Darville, which I've seen some people say it's Bo Danville. You're right. It, it's Bo Darville. He, he, he actually says Bandit Darville at one time. And, but yeah, so I, that's a good point because then you, you know, even in Superman two, you get this, this, the Englishman's version of a, <laughs> another Englishman's version of a Southern a southern sheriff and and uh you know it's it's it was just floating around in the the film zeitgeist i guess at the time but uh and, and then of course you know like we said uh tv took it and ran with it with with sheriff lobo and and roscoe and and boss hog and and uh and all those type of things and it, it's kind of funny that you brought up earlier i i do think this was toward the end of the of the cb radio craze and you know it's like hollywood you know, by the time they glommed onto it, it was already kind of dying, <laughs> dying off. I mean, the song Convoy and all that stuff. I don't know mm-hmm. the dates, but I'm thinking it was like 76 or or something like that. You know, so by the time the TV shows like Dukes and, and Smoke, I mean, uh, BJ and the Bear came on, it was like, what, 79? So, right. yeah, it, it was, you know, of course, BJ and the Bear didn't last that long, but uh the Dukes of Hazard had a long shelf life, considering because um, it lasted like up to eighty-five or something. But but uh, yeah, it, it's uh, it's it's uh, it's definitely it's definitely interesting how you know the, the way this movie is versus kind of even sometimes what when I first revisited it, it like it, as an adult in college versus what I remembered as a kid. You know, because I I think part of it too is even though there's a lot of fun, a lot of crashes, 
and it, it a lot of car you know crazy car antics and things the blues brothers came out what three years later and is it that short of time I, I think wow. it was 1980, right? Blues Brothers, I think. I guess you're 80. right. Yeah, it, you know, I didn't it, realize they were that close in time to each other. And I and I and as much as I love the Blues Blues Brothers, they had to have taken some inspiration from all the crazy car chases and especially when they're out on the interstate and stuff. Because there's one at one point in each movie, a, a cop car goes through a tractor trailer and lands on the trailer. And it's just riding down the road. You know, I mean, it's it's an open trailer in Smoking the Bandit, and it's a covered trailer in the uh, Blues Brothers. But, I mean, it's the same gag, you know. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, of course, the Blues Brothers took what they did in Smoking the Bandit and upped it to about, you know, they cranked it up Spinal Tap style to 11. But, you know. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen car crash porn that uh, that was more graphic than the Blues Brothers. <laughs> no. <laughs> But uh, so they, they did they did take it to another level, but this one came first. So you got to well, give them some credit on that. Right. Definitely, and and definitely. for this to be such a big hit, as, you know, as you said, you know, as we've mentioned a couple of times that it's towards the end of the trucker CB craze. But for it to be such a big hit and to capture so many people's imaginations, I think it's it speaks well for just the makeup of the movie. And to think that it was directed by somebody who really wasn't a director. Mm-hmm. You know, it says a lot for, for his ability to piece together a movie. And one of the interesting trivia facts that I came up with on this is apparently this was one of Alfred Hitchcock's favorite movies. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that well, was kind of shocking to me because I, I would have, you know, I love Hitchcock's movies, but I would have seen him as more of a movie snob that I, I, mm-hmm. I couldn't imagine him liking, you know, a, a lighthearted movie like this. Right, definitely. Especially by somebody who's not even, you know, like you said, by anyone's estimation until this movie came out wasn't even a director, you know. Mm -hmm. And it it would, I mean, it would make, I would think it would make Hitchcock spin in his grave to think of letting an actor just ad lib his lines like Gleason did. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and I saw that too, and I was just, I was kind of shocked. But it, it actually made me like Alfred Hitchcock a little bit more than I, I mean, not that I didn't like him, but. Just because he, you know, that's the thing. I mean, if if you if you just go in and just watch this movie and and kind of put aside what you think it might be, like I said, that it that it's not this stereotypical, you know, just redneck farce that you know that that a lot of the you know the, a lot of the redneck comedy has painted this picture that that you know everybody that's in the South is that's in a comedy or something is just going to be brain dead. You know, I mean, it's and I'm not out, out here to defend you know, uh, that in particular, but it just, it, it, it does, it does come across as, as, uh, a little, a little more clever, you know, it's, it's not highbrow by any means. I mean, it's still, you know, it's, it's still a lot of little curse cursing here and there. That's funny. And, and, but, but it's well, it's well put together, you know, it's, it's, uh, especially where they're improvising a lot of it, you know, it's, it's impressive that they, that they do come up with these things on the fly. And I noticed a couple little lines, uh, watching it the other night that I'd never noticed before. At one point, Carrie is driving the Trans Am and several times the bandit tries to get back behind the, the driver's seat in the driver's seat behind the steering wheel while they're in motion. Cause they can't stop. And they there's several attempts and they finally do, you know, they finally do get switched around. But at one point he's trying to slide behind her and, you know, Sally Fields like lifted up in the seat. and She's like, oh, 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 I think I'm in love with your belt buckle. <laughs> <laughs> I had never caught that before. <laughs> I miss that myself. And, uh, I, to me, that's that's one of the signs of a good movie is when when you can see it multiple, multiple times and still get new things out of it, you know, way later. Yeah, there's there's another line I caught where, uh, you know, when when Bandit pulls up to uh, Cletus's house and Cletus, I don't know how many kids Cletus has got. It seems like he's got like seven or eight kids, you know, and his yes. wife's got her hair up and rollers with that and and and, and, a, uh, and a bun in the oven in a bun in the oven. And, and and he walks in to the to the house and this kid comes out of nowhere and just jumps on his back and says something about Uncle Bandit. And she says, he ain't your uncle or but. If you catch Burt Reynolds said something, I should have rewound it to 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 go back to to hear it. But he says something about I knew it was you because you always kicked me in the balls or something. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, just little just little things like that. I mean, you know, and and I think because probably because they weren't working with a auteur, you know, a a director director, 
they probably felt more free to just have fun. And, you know, as long as they got the shots they wanted and, and they, they got the coverage they needed of, of you know, when this scene happened and we, we got that in the can, then that it was probably a pretty relaxed, you know, well, it's not really a set because they were on the road the whole time. But, you know, it was a relaxed production. And I think that's, I think that comes across. And I, I think you probably can't, you know, uh, overestimate that that contributed to its success because this obviously appealed beyond the 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 type of people you would assume it would appeal to you know because it wouldn't have made that much money alfred hitchcock wouldn't be a fan if it didn't kind of transcend that little niche genre of a you know i don't even know what genre that would be like a i know they did make other like you know uh almost like not they're not almost like southern exploitation movies about bootlegging and moonshining and and things like that and you know racing and stuff and they're, right. they're pretty for, forgettable but you know and most of them were you know almost like a, a black exploitation film or a horror uh or sex exploitation film uh you know they they kind of had a, a sub genre of of uh of movies you know i mean even things like i know it's more of a drama but things like walking tall or something like that you know that that are kind of more of a you know uh, southern action movie or I don't know what you call it but but this went beyond that and I think part of it's because everybody just was having a ball making it you know it just it just seemed like they were having a blast yeah I, I think that is part of the appeal to it is it it's one of these movies where it seems like everybody's having fun and it's kind of infectious as you're watching it mm-hmm. you, even Jackie Gleason who is you know in in a uh, you know a nasty mood the whole movie you still feel like he's having fun Oh, yeah. as, as he's delivering his, delivering his lines and chewing up the scenery as much as he possibly can. Oh yeah, I mean, you know, you just I mean, you let somebody like him loose that's just, you know, I mean, and just and just put him put him okay, you know, tell him you're angry, you're you're obsessed with catching this guy and I mean, uh, some of the interactions he's got with the other cops when he when he chews the guy out, especially I love it when that, you know, he he tells him not to cuss in front of his young son is like nearly 40-year-old son. And yeah. <laughs> And then he gets up, you know, gets in his face and almost pushes him out into traffic, you know, with his finger, you know, like digging into his shoulder as he's pointing at him. And then, of course, he tells him to F off as he drops <laughs> away. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Uh, uh, one thing, I, you know, I think another reason that appealed to me, too, was um, I, my dad is a uh, guitar player. And he is, uh, he likes to play in the, uh, the finger style method like Chet Atkins and Jerry Reed. And so growing up, I saw a lot of Jerry Reed, you know, heard a lot of Jerry Reed albums and saw a lot of Jerry Reed on TV. And, and, uh, so I automatically had a connection to him because of my dad and, uh, and, you know, Jerry Reed was on Scooby-Doo. So, you know, (laughs) he, you know, I, I don't think we've talked much about him in this movie. He plays another appealing character, though. He isn't—he—he—he uh, he is, he isn't just a caricature. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's definitely over the top with, like you said, the seven kids and living in—you know—basically a—you know—nothing much house or whatever, and and hanging on to his basset hound through the whole thing. But there's something about him that's kind of endearing. When he goes into the bar and he has the fight with those guys. And then, you know, afterwards he's talking to Bandit and he's like, you know, what happened? Oh, the usual, you know, like he's used to getting beat in these fights. Right. You know, this this isn't somebody who's infallible or, or you know, he, he, he is different from Bandit and yet he's Bandit's best friend. Like right. you couldn't see Bandit getting beat that way. Right, right. Yeah. I, I think I think that's uh, one thing I always like. I've always felt like and not to compare this to like an Indiana Jones movie or something or a James Bond movie, but but. You know, I've always liked it when you're in the first you're in the first movie when you meet these characters and you feel like, okay, they've they've had other adventures. They've they have a history. And and you get that with the first scene where the more bandit comes to, to pick up Snowman from his house and Snowman's not having he's like, No, you know, he's in bed and, and you know, it's it's hilarious that he's you know, he, he gets him up, he you know, sprays the aerosol deodorant on with his, you know, over top his T-shirt. He opens his shirt up and, you know, just he's like getting him ready. It's like they've been through this many times before. He's, you know, bandits had some kind of get rich quick scheme or some crazy adventure for him to go on. And he goes and 
grabs his buddy and and they take off and and much to his wife's chagrin and you know and he, of course he's a trucker so he's out on the road a lot and and uh you just and then the whole bar scene i mean and and i think that bar scene uh does a lot to make us like jerry reed and the snowman because you know he gets the hell beat out of him they're picking on his dog and who can who cannot you know just get you instantly get mad they got the dog holding him by his ears you know which is just you know, they say he bit him and, you know, they're just trying to start trouble. And he, you know, throws the first punch and knocks a couple guys out and then gets the hell beat out of him. Jerry Reed plays getting beat up really well. I mean, he looks like hell. I mean, they, the, you know, he just the way he's moving, it looks like he aches all over. And then he gets in his cab and runs over those guys' motorcycles. Yeah, it's great revenge. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's essentially, you know, not to not to invoke a movie that that might uh, cause some consternation amongst people, but you know, that's the uh, that's the scene in in Man of Steel with the uh, the logs through the truck. That's the you know. Uh, yeah, that's exactly Reeve. the same thing. The the silent yeah. revenge after the fact. Yeah, the Christopher Reeve. Uh, I've been um, working out. You know that Superman two, and uh, you know it's <laughs> it's. Uh, it's all that, and it, it's very satisfying, you know, when he does it, and it, it it makes you really, you know, really like that character and and uh, and 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 root for him, and and it's but you know at the end he you know he comes through, bandits about ready to give up, and you know he he says you know no man we've come this far we're not going to give up, and that you know it, of course it does make you wonder okay are these guys all now wanted by the police? I like I said I can't <laughs> I haven't seen the second one in so long I don't know if they. How you know how well known who they were, or you know, did Bandit have to switch his handle? <laughs> yeah, that's one of the things that kind of stayed with me through the whole movie is, you know, you got to remember that this is a different day and age because right. on the current, you know, current times they would just get him on some sort of satellite and they'd follow him and they'd put set up roadblocks that he wouldn't be able to get by. Right. You know, and, and there's no way you'd get away with that with the current technology being what it is. But right. back in you know the mid to late seventies, it was a different thing. You know, right. you didn't have the same computer ability and satellite ability that you have now. Yes. So it, it made it a little bit more believable to have it back then, although they definitely do push the levels of credibility at, at some points in this thing. Right, uh, right. But, That's kind of fun, funny you brought that up. I, not This is completely unrelated, really, but uh, we just saw the uh, the new version of Pete's Dragon a couple weeks ago. And it's I was kind of surprised to find that it's actually set in the late 70s, early 80s type time period it's not set now and after i got to thinking about it well you know the whole point is this dragon's hiding you know out in these in the uh, pacific northwestern woods and it would certainly be easier to, for him to hide then than it would be now so <laughs> you know and not garner a bunch of and they and they don't uh, not to spoil the movie but they don't uh, the media attention doesn't spread beyond the town right. that uh, that it's based around so yeah it's kind of the same thing if they i was just kind of thinking of that it's like if they did this now i mean it they they would it, it probably couldn't be uh, they, well, they probably just couldn't even really make it now. It would almost have to be a Fast and the Furious type movie or something. Probably, or they'd have to do something to jam the satellite or something. You know, there has to be some sort of explanation as to why they wouldn't be able to, you know, to monitor what's going on and follow it without losing him. Right, right, right. But, you know, and, and through the whole thing, you know, Jackie Gleason doesn't even realize who he's chasing until the very, very end. Right. <laughs> Even though he's sat down in the uh, diner next to him and they had a conversation. Oh, yeah. That, that, you know, I love that scene. And, and uh, I mean, that, that scene is famous. Uh, I actually saw uh, our, our buddy Rob Kelly sent me. Uh, he knows I love this movie. And he, he sent me uh, some, something he saw on Facebook where somebody was selling a T-shirt that said uh, Diablo sandwich and a Dr. Pepper on it which is <laughs> which is what jackie gleason famously orders and up and i did I've, I've we've jokingly that's one of the lines we that we you know throw out amongst me and cindy and our friends and stuff with the apple sandwich and a dr pepper make it quick i'm in a hurry and and uh uh a diablo sandwich i did not know this till looking stuff up for for this this episode is actually a real southern delicacy a sandwich yeah, apparently because, it's an arkansas item yes Yes, and it's it's uh, it is a sloppy Joe made with taco seasoning and sometimes peppers and and other things. But it's instead of you know having the usual sloppy Joe ingredients, it has taco seasoning. So who knew? I didn't. I had no idea. <laughs> I certainly didn't. The other one before we you know before we start getting ready to wrap this thing up, I just wanted to make mention of uh, 
which Pat McCormick and and uh, Paul Williams. Oh yeah. And while while Pat McCormick just kind of to me he was kind of standard. He's what you'd expect in the role. Mm-hmm. I, I got a big kick out of Paul Williams. Yeah. You know he he was the more comic of the two to me. Yeah, definitely. And and you know I. I as I understand it, I think he that they have a slightly enlarged part in the second one. I think so. And that might make the second one a little bit more palatable, at least right. those moments of it. Right. But but I, I you know my my gut feeling is that the second one is probably a lot more of the same and yet not as well done and like some sequels tend to be. Mm-hmm. So that yeah. that's that's my guess, having never seen it. Right. I, I'm trying to remember. I think that one centers around like traveling or trying to illegally bring an elephant across the country or something. Right. Yeah. They've got an elephant. Yeah. That's that's about all I really remember of it is that they have an elephant, and I just remember that it they're hauling an elephant, and it's got something to do with Big and Little Enos again, and and uh, it it's it just yeah. I'm I'm gonna have to watch <laughs> it again just to just and and if and if I if I watch it and it's not nearly as bad as as um, as I thought, I'll let you know, and you can <laughs> you can at least in feedback tell tell the listeners. Well, Chris said it wasn't as bad as he thought it was, <laughs> but three, I'm pretty sure, is pretty horrible. Because uh, oh, I, I have no doubt. Yeah, anytime you you're missing the, you know, you don't have, you barely have Burt Reynolds, and you have no Sally Field. You know, you, we all know sequels like that. You know, when they when they start losing the the leads, then it's a then it's a problem. So. Um, I, I think Caddyshack too, with uh, Jackie Mason playing the Rodney Dangerfield role. Oh God! And Dan Aykroyd playing the Bill Murray part. Oh yeah, jeez, I'd forgotten about that. <laughs> I tried to forget yeah, about it. Uh, I'm sorry that I brought it back to your mind because that was horrible. I got to share a little something about. I really do like Paul Williams. He's got such great lines, especially when he's like, you know, counting off the money for, you know, to give the bandit, and he keeps saying, "Well, I need, uh, I need a car, fast car." Faster than that, you know, and he's like, I'd like to kick that son, you know, I'd just like to get a hold of it. You know, he's like, he's mumbling all these, you know, what he's going to do to the bandit and, and just, he's, you know, he's such a smug little guy and, and, you know, it's Paul Williams. Paul Williams is like, he, you know, he like owned the seventies, man. You know, it's, mm-hmm, he did. <laughs> he, I mean, he, he had so many, you know, it was in, you know, he, he had wrote great songs and, and, uh, you know, the Phantom of the Paradise and things like that. So. You know, it, it was just another. Let's not, let's not leave Battle for the Planet of the Apes off. Oh well, that's right too. It's, there you go. Yeah. So it was funny. A couple years ago, we were flipping around channels. Me and Cindy were on the couch, and we I land. Uh, they was on VH1 Classic, and there's a guy, a short kind of pudgy guy with sunglasses and a cowboy hat, sitting on a couch talking to Eddie Trunk, the the DJ TV host. And Cindy's like, "Is that Paul Williams?" And I'm like. No, that's Axl Rose. <laughs> and and ever since then, whenever we see Paul Williams, I'm like, look, it's Axl Rose. Uh, so <laughs> he really did look quite a bit like Paul Williams right there. I just, that's, that's that's an insult to Paul Williams. I'm sorry. <laughs> and then one of my one of just you know by chance, I really really like the song "Drift Away." Mm-hmm. And apparently that was written by his brother. Okay. And I, just just by chance, I found I was going through something and on YouTube, and I found a version of that song that it was apparently some John Denver special, and Paul Williams was on it, and the two of them sang the song. Oh, okay. It just did, you know, totally unrelated to every other part of the conversation, but it's just just a moment that I enjoyed discovering not too long ago. Hey, I've got like you know the whole Paul Williams John Denver thing with the Muppets because you know Paul Williams wrote like a ton of the Muppet songs especially in the movie and right. then John Denver did the Muppets Christmas special there were two of them I think and then mm-hmm. we had the album when I was a kid and that's like one of like, I always listen to that album at Christmas time so yeah it's like and I think he may have even written some of the songs on on that album too I'm not 100% sure but yeah I mean that you know that's just a that's just a good chunk of of 70s goodness right there so yeah, I, I would say overall you know you, you talk about him in the 70s his contribution to pop culture is un- way, way underrated definitely so yeah. we'll just leave it at that plus he, he did guest star on one of my favorite episodes or one of my favorite shows ever in fact my all-time favorite sitcom the odd couple oh okay okay well he was the penguin on batman the animated series yes so like i said underrated for his contribution <laughs> 
But now's the time in the episode where I think I have to ask you the magical question, Chris. Mm. Smokey and the Bandit, is it Jaws? And let me give the Jaws scale once again to anybody listening, because I feel the need to reiterate it every episode to Rob Kelly's delight, because he thinks it's amusing that I have to do this. Uh, <laughs> For, for purposes of this show, the, the Jaws movies are not ranked by the quality of those actual movies, with the exception of the original Jaws. If you rate it Jaws, you're saying it's an all-time classic, very, very few flaws, if any, and whatever flaws it has don't interfere with the quality of the movie at all. Jaws 2, really solid movie, very enjoyable, rewatchable, but not what you'd call great. Jaws 3... Something you could watch, nothing special, but not offensive in any way. And Jaws 4, just terrible. Bad movie. <laughs> Where do you rank Smokey and the Bandit? I'm going to have to rank it as it is Jaws. For a comedy, it is Jaws. Now, if it was ranked up against Jaws as just a movie, no, it's not Jaws. But for what it is, which is just a light, fun comedy, I feel it's a classic. I feel that it's there's... Uh, there's very little I would change about it. I don't think there's really any scene in it that's bad. Uh, I think everything moves along. Of course, it's got to move along at a breakneck pace because it's them on the you know doing 110 miles an hour through the whole movie. But uh, it's it, it kind of transcends uh, a lot of other comedies, and it's just it's just so fun and and uh you know and and obviously it's it's you know it's it's well remembered i think everybody knows what you're talking about you say smoking the bandit they know they think of burt reynolds they think of that car uh they think of jackie gleason um and even if you haven't like you said haven't seen it all the way through set through it you you know you probably knew everybody that was in it and knew about it so i think it's it is it might be on the lower end of Jaws 1, you know, in and definitely in comparison as far as a classic film it is. But it's it's above Jaws 2. So yes, it's Jaws 1. Okay. And I fully anticipated, you know, knowing that you've picked this movie and what you've told me about it, what you thought of it. I I fully anticipated you'd be a Jaws person on it. And right. I could tell you I went into this with the absolute expectation of this being Jaws 3 for me. Oh, really? I thought I would think you know yeah it's okay but it's nothing special and i have to say having watched it and having given it a critical eye and giving for the fact that this isn't really my genre here mm -hmm. the uh the good old boys movies um i still have to say it would fall as a jaws 2 for me mm, okay. despite my expectation of jaws 3 i think it's pretty well directed especially when you consider the fact that the guy had no experience although i don't like to you know i don't want to give extra points because he didn't have experience it is what it is and i think right. it's a fairly well directed movie i think it's a very very well cast movie i think the chemistry between the actors is tremendous and especially when you consider again as we mentioned how little screen time some of them have together uh i think the Plot moves along fairly well. I think it's lighthearted, and yet it doesn't have a real silly feel to it, although it does make you laugh at times. So overall, I think it's definitely a success. It is a very good movie. I just, you know, for me, it's not a classic. So I have to. I can't give it a Jaws, but I can give it a Jaws too for me. I'm perfectly fine with that. I can understand that completely. I think that's pretty good, considering you hadn't uh, sat down and watched the whole thing before. So I think it. I think that speaks well for it. So. Uh, you know, it's kind of funny. I forgot to bring up. I was going to bring up. There's another weird fact about Hal Needham, the director. He actually had a line of toys uh, made with his name at around the same time. Uh, there was a Hal Needham action figure and Western movie set. It was a whole stuntman set thing that you like. You know, it was the idea that he was a stuntman and that you would set up these different scenarios in this Western scene where, like, the banister would fall and, you know, you knock over these these other uh, cardboard cutouts of other characters and things. And it's just, I mean, this guy must have been one heck of a promotional uh, artist himself just because he, I mean, how many, he directed, a, like, one of the biggest movies of the decade and had his own toy line. <laughs> I mean, it's... Yeah. I, I vaguely it's remember that. I didn't realize it was Hal Needham, but I, I remember, like, the, the toy as you describe it. Okay. But I think it's a little after my time. I mm -hmm. think I was, you know, like I said, I was a teenager when this came out, so I, I don't. I guess I saw commercials for it because I doubt I would have been playing with it. Right. Not that I've outgrown anything <laughs> ever in my life. <laughs> right. <laughs> 
Yeah, but gotcha. I do vaguely remember that as you describe it. <laughs> and it's he was probably rolling in cash by the time he finished with all these promotional things. Yeah, I think he went on to direct a few more of uh, of uh, Burt Reynolds' movies. Uh, you know, in the eighties, I think. Uh, uh, I think uh, Stroker Ace and and uh, I think he did he direct the Cannonball Run movies. I can't remember. It seems uh, like he may he may have. I'm not. He may I'm not... have. I, I'm gonna check on that as we speak. Okay. Here we go. Hal Needham. He's got some huge. <laughs> he's got a, a, a huge uh, filmography, but uh, most of it's stunt designing and that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cannonball Run. We're looking at around 1980. Something like that, 80, 81. Oh, wait a minute. He's, yeah, this is on the stunts. Here we go. Director. He directed 20 things. Okay. Cannibal Run 2, Cannibal Run. Smoking okay. the Bandit 2. Uh, Smoking, well, Smoking the Bandit is his first. And just to go through some of his filmography as a director, Hooper, which was another yeah. good Burt Reynolds movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The Villain, which I vaguely remember, but I, don't, I couldn't give you any details on that. Yeah. And we'll jump over a couple to Smokey and the Bandit 2, The Cannonball Run, Megaforce, <laughs> Stroker Ace, Cannonball Run 2, uh, Cannibal Run 2, yes, uh, Body Slam, which I, I vaguely remember as being a wrestling movie. Yeah. And it looks like he did the, uh, the Smokey and the Bandit TV movies as well. Oh, he did? Oh, okay. Mm, he was so, slumming then. <laughs> but he did manage to get himself into a lot. And you know, his, his stunt... Filmography starts in 1957. Wow. So this guy had a long and distinguished career. Is he still with us? No, he passed away in 2013 at 80, at 82 years old. Oh, well, he had a pretty good run. And so, yeah. Wow, well, yeah, I mean, that's that's a pretty... I mean, that's the type of guy that somebody could make a movie about, you know? <laughs> yes. Because uh, I think he was like, a, he was like a, a, a paratrooper or something, and that's how he got into... Uh, uh, he was he was doing like uh, stunts for he got into doing stunts because they needed paratroopers for uh, some kind. I think it was uh, I think it was the uh, the Charles Lindbergh movie that has Jimmy Stewart in it. Uh, oh, Spirit and, of St. Louis. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, that's how he got into doing stunt work. So, I mean, that, you know, some, somebody get on and write a script about the Hal Needham story. Come on. You know, <laughs> <laughs> there's no way, no way. That you could come from my loins. Soon as I get home, the first thing I'm gonna do is punch your mama in the mouth. 